0: We're going to go to uh, the Psalms today, which is a little different. We've been going through the book of Acts over the last little bit, and we're just going to take a little diversion uh, into the book of Psalms, and turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 115, and um, I think when we think about problems sometimes, like we're talking about uh, finance in an unusual way, right, we don't normally take part of our service and go, let's stop and focus on this aspect of our life in community together. In fact, um, this is the only time in almost three years of me being here that we've done that. Um, So it's a little unusual. And when I think about that, you know, I've used this idea of flourishing or vitality a number of times in my preaching. It's a phrase I like. In fact, we'll see in the message today. It's a biblical phrase, the idea that God intended for humans to flourish. And so you see it really clearly in the text that we're going to look at together today. But I think it helps us to see, okay, we've got this problem, but the problem is a symptom of something else. You know, sometimes that's what problems are. We think, ouch, this is like screaming for my attention. But when we look closely, we're like, that's not the problem. You know, the problem is I got a rock in my shoe. You know, so when I take the rock out of my shoe, it gets better. And so I think that when we think about flourishing, what we're going to find is like giving is a symptom of a problem that's different than the very obvious one we would think. We think we our cash flow is the problem. No, the problem probably is somewhere a little different than that. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 115. Let's begin there looking at verse number 14. And I chose the New International Version today because I like the way it expresses this idea. Uh, In verse 14, it says, May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence, It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. And so this passage that we'll see today in some of your translations, when you read, it uses the word, may the Lord cause you to increase. May you grow. And I think it causes us to think about like our families and children and extended family, that it is a prayer wish, as many of the Psalms are, When you read the Psalms, it's helpful to think of the book of Psalms as a place that God has given you information about how to pray. The the book of Psalms mostly consists of someone's praying, David's praying, or uh, David's journaling and and his uh, expressing of his internal self, and so uh, that's what this is. Psalm chapter uh, 115, this part of it that we're reading is a prayer to God. It's, and so he's expressing some prayer wishes, some things that he wants to see happen. So when we think about the subject of flourishing and the, and the church, churches flourishing, you know, honestly, which is always what, uh, it's a good place, it's a good thing to do, right, to be honest. You should never even have to say honestly. But churches, uh, there's a cultural moment that we are in where it, uh, church realities have become sometimes difficult. And ours, you know, right now, there are aspects of it that are. There are aspects of it that are beautiful. And, you know, just like today as we worshipped, I thought, man, God has gifted us for a church this size. We have some incredible worship leaders. Unfortunately, Scott cut his finger and pray for him as he recovers. But we we have some incredible worship leaders, and I was able to worship. And when we think about our church, there's some awesome stuff you know that's happening that God God is doing among us but churches generally in North America we've talked about this our situation is that we're in a season of recovery as a church we're in a season of recovery we're in a season of revitalization and if we had to think about where is it that we are currently that's our reality is that and it, what it requires is unique energy unique commitment unique focus different than at other times when it felt like everything has happened easily and naturally, you know. It requires extra energy and focus and and, uh, deliberate kinds of things that we do. And we're trying to, you know, pay attention to a lot of that. But it's like this is a cultural moment for many churches where life just feels difficult and uneasy. I read a book years ago. I've always enjoyed reading, and especially about leadership. And the first, uh, I think I heard of this book and knew excerpts of it, but it, the, it was by George Barna, and Bar, Barna wrote a book. This was in the late 90s called The Frog in the Kettle. Anybody remember that book, The Frog in the Kettle? It's basically an, an, an analogy. And the basic idea is that, and I don't know who did this, okay? Who was experimenting on frogs in the 90s? I have no idea. But the idea is you put a frog into a pot of water, and if you increase the heat gradually, he won't be conscious of it, and he will stay in the pot and boil to death. That's the idea of the frog in the kettle. It's a little bit of a gruesome concept. But the idea is that because... What is happening has snuck up on him. He's not aware of it. And consequently, the danger and peril that he is in does not announce it to himself in a way that causes him to flee and get out of the difficulty that he's in. And George Barna, in 1998 or 9 or so, said, Hey, church, the culture is going to change around you so rapidly that this analogy will fit your reality, that you'll sit there and cook and one day you'll wake up and go, no, we're in extreme danger. How did this happen? And so he was trying to say back then, listen, pay attention. Culture is changing drastically and if you're not dialed into it, you won't know how to adjust and be missionaries. You'll be surprised. And part of it is like, I read a great book by Reggie McNeil called uh, The Present Future. And it was the best book that he ever wrote. He used to work for Baptists in South Carolina. And he said, basically what's going to happen is you've got this generation, boomers is who, who they mainly were, boomers, who knew how to do church. But, the church is aging out. And that generation that for them, it was sort of a default behavior to be generous and to give, are aging out. And, and so he says we're living on past realities that we, have, we haven't adjusted to the present future, what's really coming and happening. But Barna's book, I thought, was correct in helping us understand that immense cultural changes were going to come eventually, And the impact on churches would feel surprising to them when they happen. For some churches, the point of no return is reached, and no one seems to understand how that occurred. Critical mass, I've used that phrase a few times. I said, a guy that I know wrote this book, and he said, you know, I want to keep sharing optimism hope for us is like i look around the room i look around bible study i look around wednesdays and the people that are showing up and serving are in their 20s and you know there's a very committed group of young adults in this church which is um when uh, as you think about the life cycle of the church that's healthy one of the big challenges that we have as a church is that when you look around you don't see a bunch of children you don't see a bunch of youth. And it's why, if we're wise, we go, how do we change that dynamic? What do we do to make it different? How do we affect that? How do, how do we prioritize that so that a family that comes to visit here goes, this is a church that is for my family? Clearly, they understand that, you know, they have to do children's ministry. And so, you know, we think about these are just some of the realities that, but sometimes churches reach critical mass, which means the internal situation changed so much that it became impossible for them to recover vitality. They couldn't flourish. And so... The frog in the kettle analogy is, is a wise one for us to dial into to say, wait what if we what if things change but we don't change? What if we don't adjust? What if we don't take this threat seriously? And in the context of the scripture that we read, there's a contrast between God who causes and sustains growth and idols, which are poor man, uh, man-made replacements. That's what you see in this passage we didn't read all of it, but in the beginning that 's what you see is that the the writer is talking about the fact that people often choose poor man made replacements for God, and we'd think people would be smarter than to worship temporary inferior finite things. but have we looked at people? you know if you look at people no we're just we're just dumb enough to. <laughs> Put all kinds of things in the place of God and to be idolaters. John Calvin said man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory for producing idols. Man's heart, he says, is a a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, we can lock on to all kinds of things that we give priority in our, our life so that God becomes secondary if if secondary, and part of the difficulty today is that idols are so cleverly camouflaged that we don't always know we're in their embrace, and I thought about that. You probably shouldn't make a list like this, but I did. The camouflaged idols, what are, what are they? Sometimes our, the idol is the grievance that we have, the anger that we feel, the resentment that we nurse, that we can't get over, that keeps us locked into a self focused spot where it's unhealthy for our spirituality. But it becomes so important to us that God gets God's best for us, God's purposes get sidelined. Sometimes it's leisure and sports today. I love sports, by the way. You know, I'm a long-suffering Falcons fan. I play tennis. I enjoy sports. I think God. When I think about sports, I I watch athletes sometimes. I'm like, the ability to perform at a high level as an athlete is a gift from God. People don't always acknowledge that that's what it is. But, man, I love watching a guy catch a touchdown in the end zone, and he's able to put his toes right here in motion, catching a ball from 30 yards or 40 yards away. I'm like, I'm blown away by that stuff. And I love to watch sports, but it's not the most important thing in my life. If I miss a football game, I don't, I'll watch, I'll DVR it and watch it later if it means something to me. But my, it's not my priority. Comfort sometimes. Our faith doesn't interrupt or inconvenience us. I like to be comfortable. One of my favorite things to do is uh, uh, let it rain and me be free to do what I want and I'll be on the back porch. We bought these $30 hammock swings. And sitting in that hammock swing on our screen porch in a rainstorm with a cup of coffee and maybe a book, it doesn't get any better. Comfort, I love comfort like everybody does, but comfort can't be the most important thing in my life. I have to be willing to let God interrupt my comfort. I have to be willing to say yes to God sometimes when it causes me to have to go somewhere and do something I don't want to do. Otherwise, what I've got is an idol of comfort. Sometimes our, our idols are our preferences. I want this and that out of my church. I've seen people show up sometimes to church that you're meeting for the first time And what you encounter is like, I want a church that does this and this and this. I'm like, well, you're probably at the wrong place. Because I don't think we can do all that. How about a church where people love and worship God? What would be wrong with that as a priority? Sometimes it's like my preferences. I want this. I want that. can become for people an idol. Nostalgia can be an idol. You know how uh, I love Ecclesiastes 7.10. It says, don't inquire asking, why were the former days better than these? Because you don't inquire wisely about that. Ecclesiastes 7.10. Don't say about the past, why was the past so much better than now? The writer says, You're not, you don't, that's not a wise question to ask. It means that you've lost perspective. It means that you don't see that God is presently active too. It means that you don't see that even though things that ha- have changed, God has, a, uh, God has a purpose for now. Not just in the past. Politics. Now, my mom would say, you've stopped preaching and gone to meddling now. But sometimes it's like politics for us becomes idolatrous. Uh, you, you can tell the way... It, The passion that people assign to it. We assign so much passion to it. So much meaning to it. That we think the only way in the world the the world will change is if the right person gets elected. Sometimes for people, control can become an idol. My outcome, what I want is so important. I I love the system of governance here in, in the sense that Uh, i'm part of a team of leaders and so we listen to the congregation listen to each other and but it's not i'm fine with going to a group of people and saying okay that's not how i see it exactly but as i listen to other people I, i can see that there's wisdom in that consensus so i don't have to be in control hopefully i keep that healthy attitude I was, me, and, me and Frankie, you were, my, my wife, Frankie and I were walking. And I said, here's, you know, part of what I'm talking about. You tell me what's idolatrous in people's lives. Hey, when I was talking through this and thinking about it, I thought, hey, Bobby, what's idolatrous in your life? What's idolatrous in my own life? Media. How many hours a day is our cell phone in our face? Okay, liar, liar, liar if you say it's not a problem in your life because I don't know almost anybody that's not a problem in their life. If it's not a problem in your life, praise God, you are far along compared to the rest of the humans I know. Technology. And it's not in and of itself bad. I use it all the time. I love uh, Bible Hub. Every week I go to Google and I search for verses of Scripture and it saves me the time. that When I first became a Christian, you had a concordance that was like you could kill, you know, live animals with it. It was so big and heavy. And like now, I don't even use a concordance. I use Google. And I type something in there, and I find what I want, and I go to Bible Hub. is my favorite online, you know, program. But technology can become for us an idol. It can become something that distorts and takes us away from God. Busyness. We sometimes we think, "Oh, I'm so busy," you know, and it's like we it, it's like it excuses us sometimes from deciding that we'll have God honoring priorities. Oh, I'm so busy, too busy. I put Wordle in there just as a joke because I think Wordle's becoming passe anyway. But just kidding. Work people sometimes it's like all these things are is we we think idol I thought it was something carved out of stone no it can be anything in our life that gets in the way of our relationship with God and and its priority and so uh, this passage that's the context the context is putting God first and, and then the prayer wishes may the Lord cause you to flourish when God's first we there's the possibility of flourishing And what the passage shows us is, first, flourishing comes from the Lord. That's what it says, verses 14 and then a little later on. May the Lord give you, may the Lord cause you to flourish. May you be blessed, verse 15, by who? By the Lord, by the Lord. It's God's, this is J. Vernon McGee. Anybody remember J. Vernon McGee? He used to be on the radio, uh, had a Texas draw, one of the first preachers I ever listened to on the radio, uh, through the Bible uh, ministry. Of course, he his, some of his um, end time stuff, I'm like, I don't really believe that the same way. But he was wise and helpful to a baby Christian like me at that time. He says, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You might think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Right, You don't have a universe. God created it. God made it. God infused it with purpose. So the passage shows us as in, in this prayer wish, Prayer which may the Lord bless you. One of the things you see is that we acknowledge God as our source when we pray that way. We're saying, God, you're the source of everything. You made me. And it's also a humbling prayer because I have to say, I'm not God. If I acknowledge someone else made me, it means I don't keep the world going. Well, how smart do you have to be to figure out you don't keep the world going? We roll out of bed every day and we breathe in air that we, I couldn't possibly create the chemical realities that I take for granted outside and inside. Inside myself, outside myself, in the atmosphere, on a planet, I've heard other people say this, that rotates around the sun, in the perfect orbit that it's elliptical, they say, so that we get seasons and and we get variations and changes. we got this little moon going around us that gives us tides and does the things that it's doing. But we're the perfect orbit around this sun so that we don't burn up, we don't freeze, we've got this canopy of gases around us in the air that we just breathe in and out. How could we not acknowledge that God is doing that? God did that. It's humbling. Here's what I notice when I try to be God. It gets pretty messy pretty quick. It's very stressful to try to be God. I notice myself sometimes doing it, like I'm trying to be God, and all of a sudden my life feels like, just stop it. You know, that's what I have to tell myself. Just stop it. You're a very terrible God. But the one who made us, the Bible says, I can cast my care on him knowing that he cares for me. Isn't that a great promise? Cast your your care upon me, he says, because I care for you. So when I stop being God, it's like, whew, what a relief. And and, and the idea that flourishing comes from the Lord is an acknowledgement of what's true. And it in, it includes us, too, though. You know, when we read this passage, we can see that, you know, our obedience, our surrender, our being willing to yield is involved. When the, the Scripture talked about, uh, when Paul was talking about how it works, how life works, he says, and especially how the kingdom of God works, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God made it happen, Right. It's like I love the analogy where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer, and he it says he planted his field, he went to sleep, and at night it grew. A miracle happened under the soil, and I love what it says in that passage. It says he doesn't know how it happened, but what did he do? What's a farmer do? He has to plow, prepare, plant. He did all that. And then he went to sleep at night, and God did a miracle under the soil. And that's what I think Paul is is talking about here too, when he says that I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. God gave the Did the miracle only God can do? And when we think about that in community as a church, it's like. You and I still have to do the things. You know. We still have to behave like a church, a community, and that has needs and serves and shows up and is obedient and consistent. And then we just trust God and, and the Bible says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, to him be glory for forever and ever through through the church. Amen but god does things he, you know he works in our, as we yield i always remember my pastor citing this passage and thinking about its meaning and how seminal it is it says therefore my beloved uh, as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we get this sense of this unequal collaboration. It's unequal because God does the heavy lifting, right? He's doing the heavy lifting, but he still says, work out your own salvation. That doesn't say work for your salvation. It says, as I work it out, it means I commit to behaviors that are consistent with the reality that God has saved me through Jesus. And then God is doing, he's committed to work inside of us. I, I love Philippians uh, 1, I think it's verse, it's either verse 5 or 6. It says, the one that began a good work, and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. That's a, a very encouraging promise, especially on days when it doesn't feel like it, when it feels like I'm stuck and nothing is happening. No, God says, the uh uh, the person, the one who began a good work in you will faithfully carry it out until the day of Christ. That's his work. It's his promise. And so we, we see that, first off, flourishing comes from God. And then secondly, the passage shows you that it passes from us to others. So look at what the Bible says there at verse number 14. It says, uh, again, may the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. In other words, God's plan isn't just for you. It's for other people, too. So when we take God seriously, others are blessed through us, our children, other people. I've been listening to this podcast, it's from the Gospel Coalition, just started listening to it about what the meaning of post-Christian. Because we've said that like part of the challenge, the threat for the church, is just the culture, the moment that we're in, is post-Christian. Is post-COVID too, which I think we can stop saying that is the crux of this. It is post-COVID, that's North America, but it's post-Christian. But You say, okay, well, so what? What does that mean? And so this podcast is doing a very good job of saying here's what it really does mean. That saying the deeper historical developments that have created the current world look like this and the modern West, how it functions and feels... And so uh, I picked up a book based on the podcast that I'm also reading. It's fascinating to me. I don't know. This is just something I really enjoy. But they use this acronym that was uh, really someone from Harvard uh, uh, developed the weird part of it, and this pastor uh, developed the er part of it to say here's what it means to be post-Christian. First of all, we think of the world. When I was talking to Frankie about this again, you know, uh, she's good to bounce sermon ideas off of. But um, when when I say the third world, what do you think of? If you're familiar with the idea of the third world, most of us would say underdeveloped. That's the third world. It's like developing countries, countries where, you know, I've been to parts of the third world where, like, I take for granted that I live, uh, you know, a few steps to an indoor toilet but I've stayed in a hostel, a hostel, a hotel, you know, in this country where I slept in a room with uh, four or five other uh, brothers, and where you, when you went to the back, there was no running water in the room or, you, you know, where we were staying. If you When you wanted a toilet or a shower, you went to a courtyard, and that's where it was outside. You know, we take for granted all the world looks just like the world where we are. But, you know, when we think about Western, what does that mean? We live in the West. What is the West? Well, it's NATO and its allies. That's basically what it is. Post-World War II, the West is places that were colonized by Europe, by England, by uh, Anglos, and now that have that sort of influence. So what's, if we say that's the first world, what's the second world? What's, what is, it's communist countries, basically. It's people who aren't NATO allies. It's where communism is most influential. And then the third world became, by default, the way that uh, people thought about it, the underdeveloped world, Latin America, uh, parts of Africa. Those That was what people considered the third world. And, and so, you say, so what? Well, that's a good question. So what? Well, we take for granted, we who live in the West, that everything in the world works just the same way that it does here. But truthfully, it doesn't. (laughs) It's a a lot different in other places, and they don't have the values that we have. The point that the writers make in the the book and on the podcast is they say there's uh, been a a Jesus meteor that hit the West, and that the crater that was left behind are the ethics and morals and the values that we take for granted, and you know so more about that, but when we think about what is post christian what's the post Christian world, this may not be as interesting to you as it is to me, but i it's really interesting to me educated, we live in a place where you if you pick up a book, anybody in this room pretty much I would guess you can read right the print that's in front of you you pretty much are able to tell what it means and put words and thoughts and ideas together. So west the Western world is, is uh, literate, educated, industrialized. Uh, we live on the eastern seaboard where uh, currently we, we experience this with great angst in our county. We have the largest port on the eastern seaboard. Now what are we getting? Warehouses and trucks and everything that goes along with that. But... In all of our homes we own things that were sent in maybe even the vehicle that you drive was sent in a container assembled somewhere else and then we you know we use it but that's not how it is in many places of the in the world we're rich we think I'm not rich well you just haven't seen the rest of the world go to India go to some developing country and and watch what How people, they have learned how to uh, sustain themselves. They they learn how to refurbish and renew and reuse, and uh, they learn how to be very conscious of everything that they have because it's precious and it's limited. But here we're a throwaway culture. If my printer goes bad after, you know, I just toss it. Hope I find some place I can get rid of it. But in a lot of places in the world, people are figuring out every possible avenue to keep things held together. Democratic. And what what that it's not talking about Republican or Democratic, it's talking about places where there are free elections and, and human rights are emphasized. And we take for granted, isn't that how the world works? Not everywhere. It works that way here that we have democratic elections and we we, uh, focus on human rights, probably to to extreme fault at times. Then the writer added ex-Christian, which means we are unknowingly affected by Christian thought and unable to find a working ethical answer without it. So you just have conversations with people about why some things are right or wrong. And they may innately know that something is wrong, but they don't know why. And that their point is that's the that's the effect of Christianity on the West is that Christ infiltrated just as he intended to institutions and families and thought processes, so that we are blessed. And if we lose that, we will have lost something that we didn't know the value of. How do you lose something like that? I wonder. Would secularism be a way that perhaps you lost it? I would guess so. You know, if we stopped assigning spiritual meaning to things and, and let something else seep into that, then we'd have to redefine what life and truth meant. And, and the, as I say, the problem is people can't do that very easily then what happens if, if you don't have a moral consensus that comes that's derived from God and his self-revelation? What does it say in Kings? You remember what their reality was? It says, everybody did... There was no king in the land and what? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what we're going toward without the influence of the church and Christians. So... This is only helpful if you if you can do, you know, think of a way to do something about it or make application. And what I think the application is, we have to learn again how to think as missionaries to our society. If you care about Jesus, if you care about his church, if you care about civilization, you know, really, not to sound too extreme, it means that you and I, have to think of our lives now as missionaries. You know, we can still go to places where the gospel needs to be proclaimed, but the truth is, as others have pointed out, the U.S. is the third largest mission field in the world right now. Just because it's the third most populous country in the world. But it is the third largest mission field also because so Many people still need to know Jesus. And there's this whole generation of people now that when you have a conversation with them about spiritual things, you're starting from scratch. They don't know Moses from the Apostle Paul. It's like you're starting from nothing. And so that requires a different perspective. No, no uh, capacity to take for granted that things are the way they used to be. Missionaries go to the lost. That's one thing we know. They get steeped in an identity of concern for the lost. A missionary, I know, I have friends that have uh, gone, uprooted their lives. You know, a friend that I know currently is in Thailand. He's home on furlough right now. But he interrupted his life to go be with a group of people who where there was a drastic need for the presence of gospel witness. And so you don't uh, sell your stuff, sell your home, leave your family, unless there is a passion and urgency in your heart, right? That's what you would do. Well, okay. What we have to learn to do now is say, I'm no different than that dude who, who did those things and was drastic because I'm a missionary, To my society, to my culture, to my neighbor right now. That's how if the church is going to have the this flourishing, it's because we learn to think of things that way. Missionaries go to the lost. Missionaries are willing to suffer. They suffer want. They they're willing to be deprived of things that other people take for granted. They're willing to live a great distance from their family. They're willing sometimes to function under the threat of civil action where they are. Like, you know, I've shared before I went to Turkey where a friend was ministering. They took us to a place where a church met regularly, you know, publicly. And they said it was nothing for the authorities to come out and videotape their worship service. And the reason they were doing it was intimidation. It was It was not illegal. To do what they were doing there at the time, allegedly, but in practice, it was strongly opposed by uh, the, you know, what was then a very moderate Muslim government. So they would. This guy was a facing being forced to leave Turkey, where he'd gone as a missionary. He was, he was threatened, intimidated, arrested, even. For for nothing more than holding a gospel service like this and preaching Christ and trying to uh, share the love of God with others. I posted. I I built a registry once. I didn't even know churches still used them. But you know the the thing that you would put on the wall that had um, turned to him number thus and such. This was the offering in attendance this week. A registry this church asked me because they knew I did woodwork and if I would build them a registry. And um, I did, and I posted a picture of it because it turned out pretty well. And um, that's how I get uh, free you know, advertising on Facebook. But somebody uh, commented on the picture, and they said, did you know that in some countries they use those registries to post the names of martyred church members? Like, that's pretty sobering. For us to think of and convicting, that sharing Christ and living for him will, you know, we think of it, it will inconvenience you and make you uncomfortable. And then missionaries start where people are. I'll, I'll, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians nine nineteen through 23. At the end of that passage, he says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some that some people might be reached with the gospel. And so we live in a time where it's easy for us to confuse moralizing with the gospel. And what I mean by that is sometimes we, we tell people, you need to do better. You need to do better. What are you doing over there with your screwed up life? The problem with that kind of message is there's no hope and transformation in it. Nobody is transformed until the Spirit of God comes to live inside of them. You could talk to me all day long about ethics and morals and things I should and shouldn't do, but it didn't change my inclination. Because the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. How does a person become a new creation? Through through Christ. We come to him, we realize that, our way is broken and and not working. We realize God made us and he made us for himself. And we repent of our sin and we turn away from our old way and we trust Jesus fully. And we invite him to come into to our life and then he internally changes our convictions. That's what happened to me. I had I didn't have convictions about pro life, marriage, you know, you take your political platform that and I'm not saying politics don't matter because I don't believe that. I think they do matter. I just think they make a terrible replacement for God. And I don't think that anybody's heart is changed through politics. Our heart is changed when Jesus moves in. You show me somebody that the Spirit of God comes into and I'll I'll show you a human being that cannot help but change. Spirit of God will not leave you alone and let you do your old stuff. If you yield to Him, He will come inside of you. And He will live in you and instruct you in truth. He'll do all those, those things that you couldn't do when you were trying to do better. When you were trying to turn over a new leaf. That's how I was approaching life until I realized, man, I don't have what it takes. And then was willing to acknowledge that and to ask him to forgive me. And and that's the whole reason Jesus came. It's what we're talking about in Sunday school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's coming to that conclusion. God sent his son here to save me from my sin. And he was raised from the dead to demonstrate his power over death and sin, the grave, and then we, we humble ourselves and we ask him for forgiveness and then we should fill up this pool and, and be baptized as an evidence of our faith in Jesus. And, and that's how change occurs. That's how when we think about why does this matter? It matters because it's your context for being a missionary now. This is how God sends us. He sends us to be missionaries. The passage shows us that flourishing is an appropriate aspiration for human reality. Verses 15 and 16 say, May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. Look at the latter part of that. But the earth, He has given to the children of man. That's an interesting pause that He makes or a little detour. And it is a worthy goal for human beings assembled as a church to say we, sh- we should flourish. We should flourish. It's a worthy goal for a church. The earth he has given to the children of men to exercise dominion. That was one of the first things God told people. He says, I want you to people the world populate it. I want you to exercise dominion. Part of their dominion was to be worshipers of God. When that gets distorted or goes sideways, then you're... We don't have what God intended for the world. He, he says uh, the earth he's given to the children of men to manage a world and a habitat, that's the privilege God gave us. To offer these human lives and through us to put his imprint on everything, that is what God has called you and I to be a part of. And, and church, Christian community is an aspect of that. The model we're following is one we have inherited and it's not perfect. So I think about that. Okay, we've got a couple of buildings, 10 acres of property, s- several staff. That's what we currently have. This is the system. That, that We could say at some point, well, maybe we're not doing this right. We should all do home groups or something like that. Well, that would be a huge departure from what we're currently doing. What we're currently doing is saying we meet for worship, we witness, we do Christian education by doing small group ministry together, we pay attention to ways that God is calling us to be his hands and his feet around us in community, and this is what it looks like among us currently. And so we think about that. We think about the church not being perfect. It's not, but show me a perfect one. Like other people said, if you find a perfect one, too bad you can't join it because you're not perfect. But the reality is, you're not going to find a perfect church. Everyone is struggling to obey the Lord, and and uh, there may be some that are more um, less uh, less dysfunctional. But the the church is always going to be. It's made up of people. Some people have developed this way of thinking about the church. They say it's the church reformed and always reforming. And when I say reformed, I mean uh, that it follows the Reformation idea. Martin Luther and the fallout of that said that faith is justification is by faith alone. That Scripture has authority over our faith and belief and and our decision making. That it's not uh, made up man things. It's only God things that decide our direction. So it's by faith and by Scripture and by grace. That we, are, that we experience God and his salvation. So when I say reformed, that's what I mean. Is the, you know, and then other, there are other ideas people have about um, soteriology. How are we saved? You know, is it free will? Is it God's sovereignty? And I just think, well, it's some mixture of that and that God knows that. But the church itself always needs correction, adjustment, reflection seriousness, focus, vision, godly love. Who's going to do that? Well, who's the church? Well, probably you, right? Each of us. That's who it is. All of us. We're the church. So loving the community of people where God has planted us, knowing them, giving ourselves away to one another for Christ's sake is worthwhile. And it's inseparable. Listen from our faithfulness to Christ because the church is his body and his bride. We think, I can do life without church. Not according to Jesus. Jesus says the church is his body and his bride. And so obedience to him in that respect is not something you segregate out from that aspect of your life. His goal for the church is for it to be without spot or blemish. Is it? Well, none of them I know. But that's his goal. He says it will be without spot or blemish. But I like how somebody said, the church is like Noah's Ark. Have you ever heard this saying? It says the the church is like Noah's Ark. The stench inside sometimes would be unbearable if it weren't for the storm outside. I like that. Because it's just true. When we commit to community with other people, the closed quarters kind of community thing isn't always easy, but ne- uh, never are worthwhile things easy. Then the last part of this shows us that flourishing is a cause for thankful praise. Um, that I'm sorry, I copy and pasted incorrectly. This is what it should say if you're taking notes. Flourishing is a cause of thankful praise, verses 17 through 18. The dead do not praise the Lord, the scripture says. The dead do not praise the Lord. Why? Because they are expired. Their time on earth has uh, hit its limit. And it says, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth forevermore. So our lives are time stamped with expiration dates. I don't know yours. I I don't know mine. But I do know the dead can't praise. They've run out of time to decide. That's what the writer is really saying. is you get an earthly life, there's an appointed time to die. Every single one of us is going to expire, but it says now is the day of salvation. There is an opportunity of praise. It is now. I saw a post online of a church gathering this week. and it was like everybody, there was a bunch of pictures, and everybody looked unhappy in them. It was like the caption said something like, and it's not a church I knew. It was somebody I knew on Facebook, but I didn't know the people. But it was like we had a great time celebrating homecoming at whatever it was church, but everybody in the pictures looked like somebody had licked the red off their candy. And I thought, well, maybe it's the lighting, you know. But I do think if we really believe the resurrection, we have the most reason of all people on the face of the earth to be joyful people. To be people who it's evident in our countenance and in our life that we have real joy. I was reading in Ephesians this week, the scripture says, We have access to the mystery of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He says, God showed you what life meant so that you could be a joyful person, so that your life could reflect his truth in the kind of person that you are. Jesus, in Luke 18, verse 8, I always think this is such a fascinating passage of Scripture. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Isn't that an interesting question? Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And and sometimes North American Christianity, I don't know what it's like everywhere. I'm only here all the time. But it feels like a sad new era. What did Jesus mean when he said, when the Son of Man returns, will he really find faith on the earth? I think he meant, when I return, will faith be a meaningful reality for my followers? Will people keep assigning authentic significance to the faith they profess? Will I be ultimate to them? Will Lord be just an empty word on their lips? I pray not. I hope that instead he'll find us flourishing. I hope he'll find us aware of the threats that are around us and, you know, serious about them, not apathetic. Not taken for granted that we can just be the same old, you know, self and expect something different to happen. We're going to have communion today, and as we observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And so in fact, when once I prayed, I'm going to ask Cody to come forward, and uh, he'll play as we're as we're observing communion. And this is opportunity. I love the song that we sang. I surrender all. It's a great hymn. Somebody said it's the most dishonest hymn ever sung at church. <laughs> you know? I hope not. you know, I think that like it's an appeal to us to give ourselves away to surrender ourselves completely to the one who loved us so much so we when we take these elements in a moment, it is a reflection of his love for us, and he said in the scripture as often as you or do this in remembrance of me, and we remember his shed blood and his his body given for us. And it's a you know these elements for us whole they're full of meaning, and um, so the way we'll observe communion is in just a moment I'm going to ask you to form a line you can come down the center, if you're uncomfortable taking uh, the cup with the way we do it is called intinction you take the bread you dip it in the cup there then there are uh, the sealed um, uh, cups here with the everything's all there together and all of it is just a way of us worshiping the one who's given himself for us. And so I want to pray for us. I also want to encourage you to follow up. Um, you know, as you've listened, if there's a way that you need to respond with baptism, making your faith public and saying, hey, I believe Jesus gave himself for me. I want to follow him. Then talk with me. We'll be happy to counsel you and help you thinking about that decision. And you've heard all kinds of appeals today, too, to be generous. And so, you know, a part of this is saying, why aren't we flourishing? And some of it is like us thinking of ourselves, assigning the urgency, the passion to our faith that is appropriate. That's what it really is. It's appropriate. And so I'm going to challenge you in just the way that Ken did to think about, like, how can I, you know, maybe you are, I will never know, you know, what people are doing in terms of their giving. But I encourage you if you're not being uh, part of the worship of this uh, of God through our church and giving to make that a part of your commitment today as well. Let's pray and then we're gonna I'm gonna ask uh who's inside the room that can help me, Ken, yeah, if you'll come up and uh, help me serve communion this morning and uh, we'll invite you to stand with us in a moment and then to you know to form a line here. And if uh, Jonathan, if you'll help with the other part of that, God, thank you so much for the uh, for your love. For